0: Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that takes you through the most interesting, important, and yes, controversial events in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Welcome again. My name is Derek Taylor. I'm your host for this podcast. Once again, thank everyone for listening, uh, for tuning in, as it were. And remember, if you like the podcast, please go and visit uh, us on the web, uh, churchcontroversies.com. I have links to all my uh, episodes, which you can find on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and elsewhere. Uh, I also have links to my articles in places like Crisis Magazine and One Peter Five on my website, as well as some original blog posts some other material. I uh, Also, find me on uh, social media, Facebook page, please go and like it. Please go to our YouTube channel, where I post uh, podcast episodes as well. Uh, subscribe there. I'm trying to build a subscriber base up there as well. <laughs> if you would please, uh, uh, pretty please, as, I mean, as a command, as asking for it, and uh, as also uh, on Twitter, uh, Church Controversy. It's Controversies Eight at Controversies. Controversies H is the handle there. If you want to go find us there, and if you are so inclined, we also have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the of the podcast. So, welcome again to another review episode uh, of controversies in church history. This time, on a film most of you are probably familiar with. This is one of the great movies about a Catholic figure. Virtually every serious Catholic I know loves this film, "The Man for All Seasons." The film about Sir Thomas More, Saint Thomas More, who was executed for uh, defying Henry VIII during the English Reformation. Uh, this this episode of Review, the last ones have been me reading written versions of, of reviews of shows. This one will not be. I've never actually done one on, on A Man for All Seasons, even though I'm an historian. I'm trained in early modern English history. It's not exactly my wheelhouse. The 17th century is more my wheelhouse. But I I, I know about the period very well from graduate study. And I just never did one, partly because it's so maybe because it's so obvious maybe because there's so many takes out there but I figured I'd do this one give you guys an episode where I talked about A Man for All Seasons a movie that won uh, six Academy Awards uh, including Best Picture uh, Best Director and Best Actor Paul Schofield we'll talk about him in a second and um, probably the last the last Hollywood film about a Catholic character or or, you know an orthodox one uh, an admirable one to win the Best Picture Oscar, I think. Um, hasn't been any sense that I could, de- well, maybe one exception, I'll get to that in a moment. But but, um, but yeah, this is, of course, the film everyone really loves. If you don't know the story, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know the story of uh, Sir Thomas More. Of course, he was a famous humanist and lawyer, uh, famous author of Utopia, a sort of uh, philosophical work on an ideal society. Uh, friend of uh, Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, the other Dutch humanist of the age, um, skillful statesman, becomes Lord Chancellor under Henry VIII. But when Henry VIII wants to divorce Catherine of Aragon, uh, so he can marry uh, his one of his uh, courtiers, um, ladies at court, Anne Boleyn, uh, Moore uh, refuses to accede to the marriage, he resigns, but um, Henry the Eighth wants total sort of submission from his people in his court, and even though he's no longer there, he tries to get it from. Him. Eventually, he winds up arresting him uh, on specious pretenses, and eventually gets him condemned on spe- specious pretenses, and so he is martyred for the faith. He, um, uh, in fifteen thirty five. So the basic story is pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. I won't. Well, we're going to delve into some of that, but I'll some a few things about more. Here, but if you don't know, I want to focus on the actual film, which, if you don't know, was uh, was actually based on a play by Sir Robert by Robert Bolt. Excuse me, no, was knighted. Robert Bolt was a playwright uh, who became uh, also wrote several screenplays. I a play called "A Man for All Seasons," which you don't know was taken from a, <coughs> a quotation of a contemporary uh, that man uh, that uh, More was a man for all seasons. You know, someone who was you know, a Renaissance man. Who a lot of things. And, and, um, and so the background of this is, you know, more as this um, figure of conscience, and that's kind of what makes the film famous, if you don't know the director of A Man For All Seasons, a man named Fred Zinnemann. Fred Zinnemann was an uh, Austrian, but Jewish by background. And he was a famous director. Uh, he won uh, two Academy Awards for uh, as Best Director, one for A Man For All Seasons, uh, another one for uh, From Here to Eternity in 1953. He also directed High Noon with Gary Cooper. So this is a big-time director who directed this. And interesting background because he was Austrian, um, but he immigrated to the United States because of, because of World War II. And both of his parents um, died in the Holocaust. And he intended to choose, apparently, films or stories to, to, uh, uh, to film that were about conscience, about people standing up to, you know, hostile forces. Uh, that's kind of what uh, High Noon is about. That's kind of a little bit what From Here to Eternity is about. And that's kind of definitely what the play in the film, A Man for All Seasons, uh, is about as well. Because I mentioned Robert Bolt, if you don't know, was not a Christian really, um, was raised the Methodist and kind of lost his faith. But did a couple of major uh, Catholic films. Another one I may have to review later on is *The Mission*. He wrote the screenplay for that as well. But in um, *In a Man for All Seasons*, last time I did one of these, I talked about the Tudors and talked about some of the problems with it historically speaking, but how, what things I liked about it. And in these in these historical films, there's always some reason. Even when you write a historical novel, you're or something like that. You go back to the past partly because you think, yeah, you know, you. You admire the person there but if you're doing something like this you're always wanting you're always using it for your own purposes for something in the present and Bolt is a a case in point with this because if you don't know in the film there you've probably seen YouTube clips of the famous trial scene where where Bolt actually took excerpts from um, Moore's son-in-law William Roper his account of the trial and he actually speaks a lot of the words in those scenes but Bolt was pretty self-conscious about using Moore for his own purposes Bolt was kind of into like existentialism in the 1960s. This is a big thing in the 1960s. And he makes him into very much a sort of modern martyr for modern sense of self, modern sense of individuality. There's a, there's a, uh, a scene in the film and in the play where, he's, where Thomas More is trying to convince the Duke of Norfolk that he's not crazy. Everybody thinks he's crazy. And by the way, that was actually fairly true. A lot of people thought he was being obstinate at the time, because everyone else was taking the oath, right? It was it seemed to be, you know, part of God's will that you would obey your appointed leaders. So it seemed, you know, out of the ordinary that he'd do this. And in that scene in the film and in the play, he he says to uh, the Duke of Norfolk, "More does it's not important that I believe it, but that I believe it." With the em- emphasis on the I, and in fact, in the play, the I is italicized. And that's because Bolt was into this stuff. And he knew, by the way, self-consciously he was doing that. He knew the real Moore was not uh, like that. Um, In fact, I'm going to read a passage here. This is actually from the preface to the published edition of the play version of this. And it's worth quoting because it's so interesting. Uh, He basically makes an apology for why he does this he said, this guy's an Orthodox Catholic, This this is kind of a different thing. This is what he says. This is why he did this. This is him saying why he used more as a conveyance for his own beliefs. He says, for this reason, a man takes an oath only when he wants to commit himself quite exceptionally to the statement. When he wants to make an identity between the truth of it and his own virtue, he offers himself as a guarantee and it works. There is a special kind of shrug for a perjurer, we feel that the man has no self to commit, no guarantee to offer. Of course, it's much less effective now that for us most of the actual words of the oath are not much more than impressive mumbo-jumbo than it was when they were made obvious sense. We would prefer men, most men to guarantee their statements with, say, cash rather than with themselves. We feel, we know, the self to be an equivocal commodity. There are fewer and fewer things which, as they say, we quote-unquote cannot bring ourselves to do we can find almost no limits for ourselves other than the physical, which being physical are not optional. Perhaps this is why we have fallen back so widely on physical torture as a means of bringing pressure to bear on one another. But though few of us have anything in ourselves like an immortal soul, which we regard as absolutely inviolable, yet most of us still still feel something which we should prefer on the whole not to violate. Most men feel when they swear an oath, the marriage vow for example, that they've invested something. And from this, it's possible to guess what an oath must be to a man for whom it is not merely a time-honored and understood ritual, but also a definite contract. It may be that a clear sense of the self can only crystallize around something transcendental, in which case our prospects look poor, for we are rightly committed to the rational. I think the paramount gift our thinkers, artists, and for all I know, our men of science, should labor to get for us is a sense of selfhood without resort to magic. Albert Camus is a writer I admire in this connection. Anyway, the above must serve as as my explanation and apology for treating Thomas More, a Christian saint, as a hero of selfhood, unquote. Lots of things to talk about there, one of which is that he's speaking for us, he means people who obviously aren't religious anymore. But interestingly, he identifies the idea that he wants to find some sort of self there, right? This is what he admires about More and other figures. They don't seem to bend before power like that. But he also, if you notice that one quote there, he says, "Well, I want to try it? It seems to require something transcendental, and if that's the case, then we're in a bad way." I think he hit on something very obvious there, and very actually a good astute. But he was using more for his own for his own purposes in the film, and again, like and I mentioned this in the review of the Tudors, like any film uh, of that kind, it's going to take liberties. And the play and the film take liberties, the screenplay and the and the uh, the play. But actually Bolt's pretty good about giving the real Moore some time in the play. In the movie as well. One of my favorite scenes in the well both in, in that in the story is when <clears throat> early on in the film he goes to see Cardinal Woolsey, played wonderfully by uh, Orson Wells, a very rotund Orson Wells at that point in his life. And, uh, you know, he's telling him, we need to to sanction the divorce so we can get an heir, you know. And he says to Moore, what are you going to do? Pray for a miracle? And then Moore says, there are precedents. And that's a wonderful uh, phrase. And wonderful because it captures the real Moore perfectly. His piety, his real belief in miracles, but also his legal training, right? He's, you know, common law thinking is precedent-based precedent based if you don't know English common law. And so he naturally re- replies in that vein. It's a really nice scene. He also comes out, of course, in the the, the final speech at the end, the trial. There he's, you know, um, given lines, like I said before, from his son-in-law's version of his speech. And so you get some of the real more coming through. But a lot of ways in this film, you're getting a, an existentialist anti-hero. If you didn't know that watching the film, you are. It's very much in that vein, that's probably, again, why Fred Zinnemann was attracted to the story. Uh, partly what makes it accessible to so many people who aren't Catholic, because it, it's not really, it may, not look that, it may look that way, but it's not really meant to celebrate his Catholicism. Even though it kind of does, this is the good thing about the film, why it's so much better than a lot of, other, of these other um, things I've gone through. And I'll go to some other ones that are really bad despite the fact it does, put words in his mouth that would never have been there. I mean, he says uh, that the idea, to give you the contrast, he's not only Catholic, he really, really believes in the communal nature of truth. The uh, One of his biographers, uh, Peter Aykroyd, years ago, mentioned this, that truth for um, for a promise more was something public. It was something known. It was something debatable. It wasn't something private. It wasn't a matter of private intuition. And... That's why, he thought, that's why he was so horrified by the Reformation. He thought they were just appealing to, well, what we call private judgment. And so he never would have said those things. But a really good you know, screenwriter, playwright like Bolt is, will still allow the real more to come through, even though it definitely is you know, set in this way, uh, that it's a, you know, he's an existentialist anti-hero in a lot of ways. Wonderful performances, of course, to turn to the film, um, We'll get to more himself in a second. A few thoughts on him. Uh, I mentioned Orson Welles, who plays Woolsey. There's some other major names in here. John Hurt, who would later go on to fame for a lot of things, but mostly famous for having an alien jump out of his chest in the film Alien later in the 1970s. Um, Susanna York plays his daughter, um, Margaret. And Susanna York uh, didn't have a great career, but if you know anything, well, she had a great career. She had a career, but... um, Beautiful English lady. Uh, if you ever see her in anything, probably, I'm, I'm dating myself here. She was in uh, Superman two. <laughs> the original Richard, Richard Donner Superman films of the late 70s. Um, in the original film, they had uh, Marlon Brando playing, uh, playing. Uh, oh boy, I can't, what, whatever, Superman's father, Kal-El's father, uh, jor there you go, uh, in this sort of little machine in his whatever, Fortress of Solitude. In the second film, they couldn't get him back or whatever they didn't pay him enough so Susanna York plays his, she plays his mother in the film first film too and so you see her there went on to some fame there uh, you probably don't know most of these people if you don't like British television or British uh, film you won't know most of these actors another one I love in this film is Leo McKern. Leo McKern's actually an Australian actor um, also by the way someone with you watch the film his eyes look kind of funny he also had a glass eye uh, Leo McCurran plays Thomas Cromwell, uh, the man who gets Thomas more convicted in the film. And he's portrayed, and his portrayal in this is kind of, and again, most of the characters are kind of a little bit exaggerated. Uh, Woolsey, you know, you could say he was corrupt. He wasn't quite the cynical person that he's portrayed in the play and in the film. Uh, Cromwell, a little different as well. Like, he was, he did, he was ruthless. He was a Machiavellian in that sense. But they make him all almost this sort of, you know, a irreligious figure who's just out to get power. He was actually a genuine Protestant. He believed in Lutheran ideas. It's one of the things they get, kind of get wrong in the film. Uh, but McCurran's performance is great. Um, uh, devious, kind of almost a little bit like impish. Um, Leo McCurran, a nice career. Anything else um, you've seen you might recommend. I actually may do a review of this one, but he was in one uh, Catholic film later. I don't know if he was Catholic later in his life, but uh, I might pronounce this uh, I'll get it wrong, but the film Molokai or Molokai, which we don't know, is a biopic of Saint Damien of Molokai. This is the Belgian priest who uh, died contracted Hansen's disease, It used to be known as leprosy. It's not quite accurate, but he, out in Hawaii and died there uh, in the leper col- well, I just said it <laughs> in, in the colony for those people out there. And it's a it's a secular made by a secular company. It's very good. I recommend it. It's one I'll get to that. I'll actually get to that. But he plays in that film. He plays. He plays uh, Damien's uh, bishop. And so uh, fine actor. Highly recommend uh, looking into him. Uh, and a few others here. The main The main uh, star of the film, of course, is Paul Schofield. Wonderful actor. Won the uh, Academy Award for, for Best uh, best Actor for this film. Uh, someone who was a, mostly a stage actor. Came from the stage. Uh, he won, won a Tony Award for his role. Uh, he played in the play version of it first. He was the man who originated it. And, uh, again, won the Academy Award for it as well. Went on to do a few other things, uh, a few American films you might recognize, or maybe not. He did the film version of The Crucible in uh, 1996, if I'm not mistaken. He's also played in a film version of Hamlet in which Mel Gibson was playing Hamlet. He plays his father's ghost in that. Uh, But Scofield was a fantastic, uh, fantastic actor. And this film itself is kind of interesting, in the time it came out in, I mentioned 1966, kind of last of the last of these, you know, let to say the last of these. but I mentioned the last time a Catholic figure like this would get uh, a film about him would get known, uh, would actually win an Academy Award. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that it was kind of like one of the last great sort of historical costume dramas that dom- they used to dominate the Oscars. Uh, it won this in 1966. Three years later, uh, there was a film, another film about the same period, called Anne of a Thousand Days. It was about Anne Boleyn. Uh, Richard Burton was the star at that time. He was in it. And it lost out to Midnight Cowboy, which, if you don't know, is a sort of 19, very 1960s film. Had sort of risque content in it and it sort of marked a changing culturally of the guard there. Uh, it's not true that, you know, movies like this, historical films don't tend to, they sometimes win Best Picture. Um, I believe a few years ago, 12 Years a Slave, about uh, a man who was kidnapped into slavery from the North and went and sold into slavery in the South. Uh, black man, years ago. What was the king's speech? That's one. Uh, the two that come to mind that are definitely more like this are Gladiator, which won it back in 2000. That's really Scott, our old friend Ridley Scott, and uh, and Mel Gibson, Braveheart, won it in 1995. There's a couple others, but they tend to they tend to shy away from those things anymore, and especially this type of film where it treats a historical figure this reverentially. Especially, I hate to say this, if he's, he's Western European. <laughs> Some of those films I've mentioned, you know, 12 Years a Slave, uh, it's obviously not about, well, they have them in there, but it's not really about that. Um, a couple other ones, Gandhi, obviously, one that's not, not about that, non-Western culture. Uh, the Last Emperor, which was about the last Chinese emperor, obviously a different thing, one best picture, those sorts of things. So this is kind of a relic from an er- earlier time period. And those things were sort of uh, allowed <laughs> culturally by the powers that be, and about Moore himself, just a, a few more things about him, just to talk about the film and you know who he was in real life. Uh, again, it takes some of the, it gets some of the you know his you know his Catholic nature in there. At one point in the film, he mentions to his his in Raw William Roper was you know toying with Lutheran ideas and. And he says to him, well, Luther's a heretic, and um, you know his son objects, and he says, he uh, doesn't like that word, and he says, well, it's not a likable word, it's not a likable thing. They don't actually get uh, how involved Moore was with trying to suppress heresy in the years before he was actually, while well, he was still Chancellor of England, he was that was his position under Henry VIII. He actually put him in charge of it, and that actually was a shift, because before this, it had only ever been clerics would ever investigated people for theological crimes. And it's actually part of uh, Henry VIII's uh, efforts to sort of, um, you know, take over the church base. was putting a layman in charge of this, uh, putting a layman in charge of the government. You know, clerics had played that role for a long time in medieval life. And so, you know, Moore went along with this because he was hoping to bend, you know, Henry VIII, get him away from what he was doing and didn't work and wound up having to go to the scaffold because of it. But interesting thing A couple of the things if you don't know about uh you know thomas moore's think about his life and you know it's it's kind of hard to talk about it in a short little episode like this because it's such a vanished world he was actually born in london uh, i'm not exactly sure sometime in 1478 it's 1477 1478 but he was born effectively in the same um on the same street milk street in london uh, as had been Thomas Beckett in the Middle Ages, St. Thomas Beckett in the Middle Ages. So fascinating. He's basically like one one block away or something like that, like right nearer. So fascinating uh, thing about this. And he is the kind of person uh, was more, as I mentioned, would be more involved in, um, you know, he took you know heresy seriously uh, on his tombstone, I believe, again, his biographer, Peter Aykroyd, uh, actually said he had the words he used the word molesta he was molestos to heretics I can't remember what their Latin translation is but he was a he was a, an opponent of heresy and so it was something he was actually kind of proud of uh, gets left out of this obviously because of the nature of the film uh, but you have all this uh, all this in the background and the film is it's still good it still has uh, it still has some sensibility there that um, uh, appreciates Moore's Catholicism and and uh, uh, and and uh, brings that to the fore even though it's again in the service of Bolt's idea that he's you know this sort of existentialist anti-hero oh um, thinking about it I have the actual I have my copy of A Man for All Seasons in filming the film itself forgot about one other one other performance to mention Robert Shaw uh, the great Scottish actor most famously for Jaws, probably if you're an American, uh, plays Henry VIII um, with some real verve and real um, real energy in the film. He only has, I mean, one scene, um, but it's where he's, you know, he goes to Chelsea, he goes to Moore's uh, house and tries to get him uh, to change his mind about the marriage. He refuses and he kind of is alternatively flattering and threatening, does a really nice job with it. So you have all of these sorts of um Elements in the film that make it, you know, um, it's like a great film, obviously, classic film, um, but also has some authenticity to it. On the other hand, as I mentioned, there are certain liberties they take. I mentioned, you know, the, the big thing is the existentialist aspects of the of the film, the play. Uh, another thing that's kind of related to that is the nature of Henry VIII's persecution. You have this nice scene where, um, you know, Thomas More. Um, Howard, this is right after uh, Moore is in the film. He's, he's given up his office. And uh, the Duke of Norfolk, Howard, his friend, is trying to get him to explain why. And and he says, well, I'm afraid at one point. And then Howard goes, uh, man, you're ill. This isn't Spain, you know. This is England. And the implication there, that phrase, this isn't the place where they have the Spanish Inquisition. Because the Spanish Inquisition is going around spying on people and then, and then you know, getting them executed and all this stuff. And there's another scene later on, nice scene where, again, Liam McKern as Thomas Cromwell is trying to get Howard, Duke of Norfolk, to convince Moore to publicly approve of, of uh, the King's marriage to Anne Boleyn. And Howard basically refuses, and then you know Cromwell says, you better. And he says, are you threatening me? And then Cromwell goes, my dear Norfolk, this isn't Spain, this is England, uh, insinuating that he's been spying on him. It's a nice, it's a nice little dance they do, but it's totally it's fictional. <laughs> the um, the, um, the Spanish Inquisition. I've done. A, I have to do another one. I've done an episode on this. Was a, a court, and yeah, you could be denounced to it, but it didn't <laughs> it didn't have spies everywhere. That was pretty silly. Uh, and Henry the Eighth, yeah, pretty ruthless, you know, brutal government, but. He, I think he's confl- I think what he's thinking about there uh, Bolt was and Zinnemann the thing about modern totalitarian states the thing about the Nazis the thing about fascism you know mentioned Zinnemann's history with the Holocaust and that's certainly this is 1966 it's right, da- right dead in the middle of the Cold War it's kind of on people's minds and so I think that's where this st- stuff sort of comes from so it's another aspect of the film's kind of overdone other aspects they get wrong uh, you know take this is something i mentioned i think in on the tutors the episode on the tutors perhaps definitely in the episode on rome you see thomas more in the film he has his daughter meg he has his wife alice and that's it and of course he would have had a full he had a bunch of people living under his house family like a couple generations i don't think I think eventually you had you know, Roper and, and uh, Margaret Moore and their children but they had several generations of people living in the same room was like, he was a great man he had a big family and it's kind of funny there's a scene in the film where he dismisses his servants and he has like 50 servants <laughs> and he's only got three three family members in his household he might have had that many servants he definitely would have had more family in there but they, have to, they can only have so many characters on screen or in a play so they have to take that stuff out um you, uh, those types of things you kind of generally have to do in, a, pl- in a, a play or a film like this. Um, some other things interesting are the differences, by the way, between the play and the actual film. One of the biggest differences is that in the in the play there aren't many differences. By the way, one of the biggest ones is <clears throat> uh, there's a character in uh, the play version. His name's like the Common Man. He, whoops, sorry. <laughs> I hit something. There. Uh, common Man. He sort of talks directly to the audience and then merges into another character, like someone who's talking to other characters in the film. And He sort of gives you these monologues. And it's meant to be a pretty clear distinction between the Common Man and someone like Thomas More, who's this upright figure. The Common Man's only concerned about his, his self-interest and like it's meant to be this little almost sort of satirical, but almost kind of cynical play on all this stuff. And the play actually ends with him talking to the audience in the in the play. It doesn't get in the film. It's totally cut. Um, there's also one figure, one major figure, who doesn't make it into the, into the film. And that's Eustacio Chapuis, the uh, imperial ambassador, the Spanish ambassador. Well, I mentioned him in the, my review of the Tudors, how I like that character in that film. It, it's one of the worst aspects of the play, to be honest. It kind of plays on... Anti-Catholic, anti-Spanish uh, English stereotypes. Uh, Chapuis is a religious hypocrite. Um, he's kind of, you know, conniving. He makes him makes him sound like a bad guy, and I, I don't think that was actually fair to Chapuis. So glad they cut it from the film, anyway. So you have these certain things that didn't uh, did did, uh, did differently. Most part, it's the same, more or less the same, uh, same film, the same, uh, definitely the same dialogue, most the same dialogue interesting what they did differently for the film as opposed to the play. And finally, just a few concluding thoughts on Moore and on the film. Again, thinking about, you know, it's 1966. This is uh, it's 57 years ago that film came out. It's amazing. And um, it only came out when I'm old. It only came out 12 years before I was born <laughs> in 1978. And so much change uh, between then and now in, in our society I doubt this film could be made today. I just don't think you can make a film that was this positive about a figure like this. I mentioned it before. Um, there haven't been many films like this. I mentioned our, uh, Ridley Scott, who I have to give at least some credit to. Like he won an Academy Award in year two thousand with a movie about a uh, you know a white European and <laughs> won the Oscar. I uh, couldn't definitely couldn't do that today. That's twenty years ago. So, but. Uh, just thinking about you know, the betrayal of Moore, because he had been seen, like throughout most of most of history, like since his death, he'd been seen, admired by pretty much everybody, Protestant and Catholic. Uh, everybody wanted to claim some sort of connection to him. And in the last, it was 10, 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, uh, you probably don't know this officially if you're an American, um, one of the first real negative treatments of him uh, that has ever become popular was a series of novels. Um. Uh, called Wolf Hall, and God, I'm I'm blanking on the name of the author. She just passed away, actually. Oh boy. Um. Anyway, there they actually uh, fictionalized the events of Henry VIII's reign through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell, the the fixer who gets you know who, who uses perjured evidence to get Thomas More uh, convicted and executed, is, is, is portrayed as the hero of all this, if you can imagine. And she, she has a real nasty, nasty dislike of, of Thomas More and portrays him as a fanatic, portrays him as someone who's sexually repressed. Uh, she insinuates that he has sexual desires for his daughter and all this stuff. And it's just amazing. By the way, she was raised Catholic, naturally. Uh, God, I can't remember her name. Is it, uh, you'll, you'll kill me on the comments for this. I can't remember this off the top of my head. Um, blanking. But... Uh, uh, if you want to read a good takedown, by the way, of that of that of that author, who's I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Um, there's one you can find it on YouTube. Actually, it's also in written form somewhere if you Google it. Richard Rex, who is a uh, Cambridge historian, practicing Catholic, I think he's fairly orthodox, from what I understand, gave a talk uh, somewhere I think I can't remember what it was a couple of years ago, and did a major takedown of her her version of of Thomas More. And basically he made the point that you almost had to do that if you're going to write a novel about Thomas Cromwell because (laughs) nobody ever ever made Thomas Cromwell a hero of anything before. Um, So it's kind of interesting the changes that have happened that you would have in our modern secularized society to actually turn him into a villain. in which only in this era could you do that. Uh, Never been done before. Kind of a good measure of how things have changed in the last, oh, half century or so. And finally, just to, you know, one last reflection about Thomas More. I actually took uh, my, you know, my baptismal, my, my confirmation saint name uh, was Thomas More. I took his name uh, for that. And I always admired him, you know, even before I became Catholic. Uh, I mean, someone you look up to, you, you go to graduate school, you're you know, intellectually inclined, you look at this intellectual figure, uh, he wrote a famous book, uh, he was learned uh, he was successful, and he was also, of course, a martyr. Um, he made himself a martyr for the faith. And I, I think in the years have gone on, and what I admire most about Thomas More is probably his willingness to not just the not just the death, but putting off all of the. You no, know, he put off all the success he had. You know, he lost his for he did all of it. But he lost the status. He lost all those sorts of things that's in some ways almost harder for people to give up than their life. <laughs> Most people loathe giving up any sort of, you know, you know, loss of status or loss of power that way. And he did both of those things, uh, willingly. And, uh, I think, you know, again, despite the fact that it is sort of directed in a ideological way toward ideas he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have favored the, this is why the film kind of endures uh, in a lot of ways. Again, it's very it's very old-fashioned by the way it's very definitely filmed in an older style but uh still holds up after all these years partly because of the man himself and again this is one of the things where you know even if you at least try to do it well you Hollywood couldn't ruin even back then uh but it wouldn't even be attempted today so that is my little review of a man for all seasons uh, a little bit rambling but I hope you let know, share my thoughts with you and what I thought about it um just a few quick updates on what's coming. I know I've been promising some new stuff. It's coming. Uh, the next new one's actually coming for my patrons. The next episode for the series on the Latinization of the Eastern Rites is almost ready. It'll be done probably Monday-ish, uh, maybe Monday or Tuesday. It'll drop. Uh, that's coming. the The next one after that's for everyone is is it's behind. <laughs> I'm behind on it. That'll be the one on the. Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, which you should definitely uh, listen to. Um, got writing projects going on. I'm actually I've actually finished an historical novel. i have been looking around, looking trying to find an agent. So uh, please, please keep that in your prayers, if you would. And other things, I'm writing another, finishing another nonfiction book as well. So that's why this is taking longer. And I don't have any teaching during the summer, so I want to get that um, as much writing as I can. So, but it's coming. Um, as are, at some point, interviews. I, again, I keep saying it. They're coming. I'm trying to find, nail down people. I'm also still worried about my internet, which is this rural internet type service that I have. It's not that great. So satellite internet. I mean, so I live in a rural area now. And um, again, some new things are coming. I promise. But it's going to. You guys, you see, I'm. I'm. I'm not exactly. <laughs> um, uh, on the ball here I apologize for that but new things are coming new episodes are coming new content's coming so be on the lookout for that and so once again uh, go like and subscribe um, podcast wherever you listen uh, like our Facebook page subscribe to our YouTube channel visit the website uh, should have a new article coming out from Crisis soon and I think it's on the yeah it's on the traditionalist movement again uh, although it's not really about them it's kind of about that. you'll see and, uh, yes, and if, again, if you want to be a patron, please go to Patreon. The benefit of that is you're going to get, you get bonus episodes, just a couple there. You'll get episodes earlier. you also get them without ads. You get ads in the podcast, so, or one ad anyway. So, but if you want to do that, by all means. But mostly, again, thank everyone for listening. Thank you for, uh, you know, your support in any way. Thank so your prayers. Uh, keep me in your prayers. I, I pray for you guys, my listeners, so and uh yeah everyone have a wonderful week um uh have a great uh i guess well if you i don't know if you're on the old right it's still the octave of pentecost if you're not it's not but have a wonderful wonderful week and hopefully you guys will be hearing from me soon take care and god bless